Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. All right, as we dive in today, if you've ever bought a house, you know that the agreement to buy a house happens in phases, right? You go and you find the house you like, you make an offer, and that becomes kind of this binding agreement. There's ways out of it and stuff, but it's this binding agreement you make. If they accept it, you're in. So you work through all the details of the transaction and how it's going to happen. You're talking to your realtor, their realtor talks to their realtor, their realtor talks to them, and you know there's this like telephone game that goes back and forth. You get everything all set, and then you go to the title agency and you sit down, right? And you start signing papers, and they just keep sending you papers, and you sign again, and you sign again saying, all this I will do, right, for the next 30 years. And uh, you sit there kind of in a daze as you sign everything. You transfer the title, you clear the obligations, you pass the keys, and then you go out for dinner, right? And you sit and think, what have I done, right? (laughs) And I think uh, everybody's gone through this, and I think we're at this point in Exodus where we're going to see that this covenant— right, what we now call the old covenant at the time was known as the covenant is going to be ratified between Israel and God. Israel is saying all this we will do. And God has already laid out these terms in the the passages leading up to this. So they're at like the closing of this agreement. Now, the problem is Israel is a forgetful people, right? This needs written down. This needs, this needs to be honored for all time, right? And so this whole thing needs to be ratified in a very specific way. And so what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks, we're going to be unpacking today how this this agreement is made, how this covenant gets sealed. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking through things like tabernacle design and how the tabernacle operates and what these furnishings and things like that are for. And we're also going to see, and when we get to chapter 32, Israel's unfaithfulness to their side of the covenant. So before we go in, I also want to do a little overview just leading up to where we're at today. Back in chapter 19, after Israel had left Egypt, they arrived at Sinai. Moses went up to meet God, and God reminded him what he had done to the Egyptians and reminded Israel what he had done. And at that point, Israel said, all this we will do, right? God had given them law and instruction there at Sinai. And so the Ten Commandments were done in chapter 20. And then the, late, the later part of chapter 20 up to the early part of chapter 23, there's all these laws given, right, of how people should relate to one another, how society should work in justice, how property should be handled, how they should keep the Sabbath. And then at the, the second half of chapter 23, last week at Jason had preached, right, God promised them this promised land, how they would take Canaan. And he warned them about idolatry because they're an idolatrous people. And remember, Jason had talked and said, we're just like that and idolatrous people. I'm saying we're here in chapter 24 today, and what we're going to see is how this covenant gets sealed, right? But Israel's a forgetful people, and I'll give away the ending here a little bit. We're a forgetful people, and we're going to get back to that later. But in the next few weeks, chapters 25 to 31 is going to go through the tabernacle, the instructions, the contents, how it's going to be used. And chapter 32 is where Moses comes back down from Sinai, and he finds Israel's disobedience, the camp in disarray, and they're worshiping a golden calf. So as we go through today, knowing that is going to come up later, I think late February or so, 
just kind of hold that in mind as we walk through today. So we are a forgetful people just as Israel is a forgetful people and we need a covenant that guides us in the goodness of God. So we're gonna see how he rolled that first covenant out to Israel. So we look through uh, verses one through eight. Uh, Jody read most of this. I'm gonna go ahead and read verses one and two and uh, we'll get started. So it says, then he, meaning God, said to Moses, came up to the Lord, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. So here in verses one and two, God's making a distinction, right? So he, he specifically says Moses, he says he's 70 elders, and there's the people, right? Three people fall in one of those three categories. And this doesn't strike us as being very democratic, does it, right? God is saying, Moses will come to me, the elders will come somewhat to me, and the people will stay at the periphery, right? It's not an agreement between equals being made here, is it, right? God is dictating who will come, how far they will come. After he's already dictated, here are the terms. I will, have, I will call you my people, and here's the commandments and the law, and I will give you this conquest of Canaan, but here's how you're going to come ratify this. And it doesn't strike us as democratic, right? Moses isn't elected by his people. He's not chosen by his people. In fact, you'll see later on in Numbers 20, and um, okay, I'm going to lose a chapter, but in the book of Numbers, Korah leads a rebellion, right? He doesn't like Moses' leadership. He gathers people around him, him and his family, and he calls Moses out. And Moses says, we'll stand before God and we'll see who he chooses, right? And God opened the earth and swallowed Korah and his followers up into the earth. So here's this thing. In light of the book of Romans, we have the book of Romans that they didn't have, but we know God chooses people as he sees fit, right? He calls those to confession that he'll call, and he has vessels he uses for honorable and dishonorable use, and so when God calls Moses and says, you're the one who's going to come to me, God is sovereign, and that's his choice. The elders will come somewhat to me, and that's God's calling, right? And the people will stay at the periphery. So we understand that Moses has a distinct calling to lead Israel, not by his merit, but by God's calling. And so Moses comes here in verse three, right? He speaks the law and Israel agrees to follow it. So it's not the first time they say all this we will do. They said it back in chapter 19, right? So that kind of set the stage. Okay, all this we will do, right? And then God gave the commandments and the law. He's saying, okay, all that you're gonna do and here's what, here's what you're gonna do, right? And then here's this promise I give you for the land of Canaan. And now it's time to kind of sign on the dotted line, right? They made the offer through the realtor. They worked the terms out which God dictated, right? But then they're here to sign. And so, you know, Moses speaks the law to him and they say, all this we will do. And then he goes and writes the words down, right? I think, you know, lots of parents in here and you know when your kid's young, right? And you tell them, hey, you're gonna clean your room and then you're gonna vacuum, right? And two hours later, you're saying, hey, are you done with that yet? And they said, well, you never told me that, Right? And we all do this, right? We do this as adults at times, right? If my wife can send me to the grocery store with a list and as I'm leaving and she says, oh, don't forget rice milk. I don't come home with rice milk, right? If I don't write it down, I don't remember, right? And when things are just spoken, those are words in the air. And after they hit your ears, 
they're gone. And your perception is what remains, right? But when you write something down, right, there's agreement. You go back to it and say, well, this is what it says, right? I spent a good part of my week talking contracts. And I know just how much we go through this, exactly how it's worded. And what does this mean? The word this, <laughs> right? We argue over words. So Moses writes it down, right? This is no little thing. He's not just going to say it and say, yep, you agree. He's going to write it down and he's going to build an altar. And so Moses returns with the written word. This, this is preserved and can be brought in constant remembrance of this promise being made. So he makes these preparations to seal this covenant. He builds this altar for sacrifice, and that lets all these people know this means business, right? Blood will be shed. And this is not a simple or easy or lightweight process. This isn't something we just do in passing. This is something that's going to be heavy, right? He chooses young men for this. These young men need to handle these, these beasts, right? We're not just cutting it up for dinner, right? They need to handle it correctly. And it's kind of like this proto-priesthood, right? Before the tabernacle, before the temple are set up, these guys are being chosen for this blood sacrifice. And blood sacrifice is not a new thing, but it's about to become a very regular thing. You know, blood sacrifices were made back in Genesis for Adam and Eve's sin when God uh, destroyed animals and created the skins and clothing, right? Abel sacrificed. Noah sacrificed in Genesis 8. Abraham, again, Genesis 12, 13, 18, and 22. Isaac in Genesis 26. Jacob in Genesis 31. Job in chapter 1 and in chapter 42. Israel sacrificed in Exodus 3 and Exodus 5 and Exodus 17. And of course, in Exodus 12 at the Passover, when God instructed them, right, to kill the beast, very specifically, kill the lamb, spread the blood on the doorposts. So that's the thing. This is going to become frequent. It's going to become repeated. It's not quite instituted to the same fashion as we, we know it will be. But this proto-priesthood is going to make these sacrifices so that this covenant can be sealed in blood. So Moses, in verses 6 through 8, he reads the blood and he splatters the people with blood. Right? He threw it against the altar. And we know from Hebrews, in Hebrews 9.19, that he also splattered the book of the covenant. So this book of the covenant that was created, when he says this, he, he took the book of the covenant, verse 7. It said, the Ten Commandments and the laws were given in chapters 20 to 23. So all this they're promising to do, right, is being splattered with blood. This blood unites the altar, the people, the covenant. When there's this agreement by Israel, all this the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Notice it's the word we. Right? It's not I. Right? This isn't a personal promise each person makes with God one-on-one. -on -one. It, it is a covenant of all the people. It's corporate. Right? They're binding together. They're locking arms. It's not an individualistic thing. It's a corporate promise made to them corporately and made by them corporately. This kind of echoes Matthew 27. You remember when Pilate presents Jesus before the people, what do they say? crucify him, his blood be on us and our children. So they're united to sacrifice, united to the altar. That blood being splattered on them is this recognition and reminder of sin. 
So this is not some lightweight ritualistic thing where everybody just kind of does it and then goes out to dinner. Right? This took time. This took effort. And this took blood, this blood sacrifice for their sin. As we move into uh, chapter 24, starting in verse 9, it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are here with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. When we think of the cast of characters here, Jason mentioned Nadab and Abihu, were sons of Aaron, who later on are going to offer strange fire to God and be consumed. So they are part of the 70 elders of Israel that go up. And we also see later here uh, his assistant Joshua. It's the first time Moses' assistant Joshua is, is, is mentioned. Like Joshua had been mentioned, but this idea that he's his assistant is kind of introduced here. Joshua had been given the name Hoshea, and then Moses later called him Joshua. So when it says they went up, looking in verse 10 and 11, it says they saw the God of Israel, right? But the Exodus account here lacks any description of God himself and exactly what they saw other than this sapphire stone. Only this description of the stone, and it says under his feet as it were. Exodus 33 tells us no one can see God and live, but we're saying here they saw God. And it says they beheld him, right? They beheld God and ate and drank. So this is interesting because there's really not a description. So I think it's fair to say that God did not reveal his entire glory to them, right? They didn't see all of God, right? Some might question why they were there and why they could see even some of God's glory. I think when we stop and think about this, right, we we recognize um, it, it says this, they saw the God of Israel, the sapphires under his feet as it were. God did not lay his hand on the chief of men. They beheld God, right? How do we kind of wrap this up? If they can't see God and live, how do we kind of pull this stuff together? I think uh, going through a lot of commentaries, there's a lot of different things. And, and I think what we have here is they were in the presence of God in some way beyond what most men and women would see, Right? So they've seen some level of the glory of God, but they didn't behold God in his entirety because they can't. Exodus 33 tells us they can't. But they're called here for a reason in seeing some of God's glory and what God has chosen to reveal to them for a reason. Why do you think that is? Number one, God's made a covenant with them and he's not hiding, right? He's there showing them some level of his glory that they have testimony to go out as elders of Israel, right, and lead the people. Moses isn't coming down the mountain and saying, here's what God told me, everyone just trust me, right? The people have seen the thunder and and the fire on the mountain and the pillar of cloud, right? They know God is there. 
But now there's these 70 witnesses that go with Moses testifying to what they saw. And it also gives Moses credibility with them, right? Because they frequently don't follow Moses. And beholding God gives this whole thing gravity, right? And wait, it's not a little thing. So now they're calling and the promises and things like that are made even more real to them as they behold God. And that's not all, right? This we also know, they ate and drank. So that's the thing. There's this piecemeal happening in fellowship of the covenant. So Israel has ratified this covenant. All this we will do, right? And the elders go up the mountain, right? And they have this piecemeal with God. And that's the key takeaway here. The covenant's not just agreed to by verbal assent. It's sealed with blood and it's sealed with a meal of peace. Since they've seen God, they've beheld God in some way that we may not fully understand, they're not just being asked to walk by faith in the words of Moses or to be convinced by a pillar of cloud in the distance. They have even more evidence of a calling. And God promises this, to give up tablets of stone to Moses, right? He's written this book of the covenant, right? So we talked about how, like, there's this verbal, like when Moses tells the people the word of God, and then there's this written, right, that can be a count that, goes, that you go back to. But something even more permanent is promised, which is tablets of stone, right? This is going to be etched in stone. We say that all the time when something is solid. We state something that's going to be there, right? We say it's set in stone, and God promises he will write in stone and give them to Moses. And God says that, which I have written. And chapter 32 will confirm when we get there that God wrote and handed these tablets off to Moses, right? There's permanence to this covenant. So Moses, notice here in, in, in verse uh, 14, he says, And he said to the elders, wait here for us, until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Now let's think on this statement for a minute, right? They just sacrificed animals. They splatter blood on a book and on the people and on the altar. They go up and they eat and drink this piecemeal with God, right? They behold God. Moses knows they're still going to argue, Right? There's not even peace among them that he has to sit and set some, you know, some first among equals and, and pass off an authority and say, go to them, go to them with your arguments as they wait there. So Aaron and her are given leadership of the elders with instructions specifically to wait till Moses comes back down. I'm going to give away that ending. They don't wait. And you'll see that when we get to chapter 32. So not only does Moses expect they're going to bicker, but he gave them instructions to wait that they don't follow. Hold that for about five weeks and we'll get there in chapter 32. How human is that for us, right? That even, even when we have an, uh, this experience with God, when we have confession and we have repentance, right? We can still bicker. Move into verses 15 to 18 and we see God has Moses approach as an intercessor, says this in verse 15, starting there. It says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the clouds covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. 
Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So here God is calling Moses further, right? And we understand this cloud covering the mountain was visible to all of Israel, right? It describes how it looks, like a devouring fire, right? This, this promise they made, this covenant they just entered into, right? And they can see up Mount Sinai, this devouring fire and just how serious this is. So Moses and Joshua go up and they wait this six days before God called to Moses. And again, like we had said before with the, the elders of Israel, they, they didn't behold God's completeness, right? And the fullness of his glory. They had some level of that, something probably beyond what we see. And we can see even here when Moses is called into the cloud, God is obscuring himself, not because he's hiding behind anything, but because he is protecting Moses. And he calls him into the cloud. And Joshua waits there. It says 40 days and 40 nights. And, and that's the thing we know in chapter 32 that Joshua comes back down with Moses. He, he waits as he was instructed. And that kind of echoes something about Joshua because you'll see later on in Exodus, right? He waits at the tent of meeting when Moses goes back to the camp. Here he's waited 40 days and 40 nights faithfully, kind of foreshadowing Elijah's 40-day fast, right? Foreshadowing Jesus' 40 days. But he was there when Moses came back down with the tablets and heard the sound of Israel worshiping a golden calf. So this brings us to Aaron and her and the elders, right? They didn't wait. And what we know, again, foreshadowing later on, they ate and drank with God and beheld him and turned back down the mountain at some point, right? And fell away from worship and led the camp into disarray. Here the people of Israel to be set apart by this covenant, right? They have the law, right? They have this written word of God, his instructions, his holiness, what justice is, how relations with people should work right, how a society should function, how the Sabbath should be kept, and all those things were given to set them apart. Yet here, just a few short weeks after, right, they're following their own heart. They're making their own idol, their own desires. They promised to follow it, but they didn't. And aren't we the same way? Right? We all want our own law, our own version of right and wrong, our own ideas of how things should function. We all want to create our own gods. Jason touched on this last week, right? We're idolatrous people, and we will fashion something to worship or some object to worship or some idea to worship or some vain, glorious type thing to worship that we can fashion and, and fulfill some kind of felt need. And we can hear the word of the Lord and we can turn away quickly because we are a forgetful people, just like Israel is a forgetful people. We see Israel making this promise they can't hold to. And we do the same thing, right? We can be taught over and over again, diving into God's word, hearing great sermons or, or you know, articles we like, podcasts we like, all these things that are faithful to the word and turn away from it very quickly, Right? I think, I think, you know, each Sunday, we're going to do this, right? And I don't mean that to, to be discouraging. I actually want to say that to be encouraging that we have a Christ bigger than us, a sacrifice bigger than us, 
So when I leave here and I yell at my kids this afternoon or I'm frustrated over something at work or whatever, I have a God that is forgiving to me, right? And Christ who is a sacrifice for me. And this is why we need refreshed week after week after week after week here in a corporate setting with our brothers and sisters. And we need refreshed daily in the word because we're a forgetful people, right? Just like Israel was a forgetful people. Unfortunately, we have this good and faithful intercessor in our Lord Jesus Christ, standing in our place, our sacrifice for atonement, our priest who goes before God on our behalf, right? He promises eternal life to those who confess and believe, and his promise doesn't hinge on our performance. And that's what sets the new covenant apart. So here we're talking about this ratification of the covenant in Exodus 24, what we now call the old covenant, okay? And so up on the screen, I'm ho hopefully people can read it. Um, you see these priests are called, right? These kind of proto-priests, these young men who are gonna make sacrifices. And this is a blood covering, right? Of the people that Moses is doing as he splatters them. We see that the people of Israel are told not to approach Mount Sinai, right? They're to remain out at the periphery of Mount Sinai. We see the elders of Israel come closer for sealing of the covenant with a meal in God's presence, a peace meal to honor this covenant. We see an intercessor in Moses, right, called up the mountain to, to approach God alone on behalf of the people to get his message. And we see that God is dwelling on Sinai and going before Israel all through Exodus. Now let's look at this in the tabernacle and temple that are to come. Right? We're going to be covering a lot of details of the tabernacle in the next few weeks. And so I'm not going to dive in in depth on that because we'll, we'll cover all that. But there's a priesthood chosen in Aaron's line. Right? There's a bronze altar for animal sacrifice. That kind of equates to how these priests right, slaughtered these animals in the making of this covenant. We know how the people of Israel were told not to approach Sinai. And we know in the, in the tabernacle, in the temple, the people are only to enter the courtyard for sacrifices. They're forbidden from the holy place where the priests can go. And we see the, the elders of Israel went up for a sealing of the covenant with the meal in God's presence. And we know in the tabernacle and temple, the priests enter the holy place for priestly work, right? They're, they're specific garments, specific cleansings. They're showbread and drink offering. We see this intercessor in Moses in Exodus 24, and we see this intercessor where the high priest would enter through the veil into the holiest of holies once a year on the day of atonement. And we see how God dwelled on Sinai, and we know how God comes to dwell in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. But we're not in that old covenant anymore, right? We have a new covenant in Christ, and all these things on Sinai point directly to Christ, Okay, so Jesus is our good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep in the new covenant, right? That, that sacrifice in the courtyard, that's Christ. People only enter through Christ, right? He said, I am the door, right? And his sacrifice, uh, through his sacrifice, all can now approach through true confession. So we can come near to God through the blood of Christ. Jesus said he is the bread of life, right? So there was this piecemeal in Exodus 24, there was a showbread and drink offering in the tabernacle, but then there's Jesus saying he's the bread of life. And we have our communion services, right, where we get to come and remember his body broken and his blood shed. That's like our piecemeal in the new covenant. 
And of course, Moses was the intercessor in Exodus 24 and the high priest in the tabernacle and temple. But Jesus tore that veil, right? When he died, the veil was torn, separating man and God. We can now approach with confidence to the Lord, the Holy of Holies, through faith in Christ. And where God dwelled on Sinai, right? And God dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of each who believe. So a lot of times we walk through these Old Testament passages, right? And we can make these connections to Christ. We no longer have to make this ritual sacrifice for our sin or have blood splattered upon us or a book. But that Old Covenant points to the New Covenant where we get to rest in the work that Christ has done. We can come together repeatedly and walk through confession and repentance and be washed anew in the word of God week after week after week. We can come with faith like a child and a contrite heart and confess our human and sinful condition and have our Lord Jesus Christ wash us, wash us in his blood. And we can be cleansed and we can pray and we can have an intercessor, right? That Holy Spirit dwells in us, right? That, that Paul calls the paraclete, right? He's an advocate for us, moving our hearts to confession and repentance. But the thing is, we're a forgetful people, right? And I know we all do this, right? We walk through the ups and downs week after week after week of doing well and doing horrible, of struggling, of feeling a high when we've read our, our Bible, right? And feeling a low when we've messed up. But over and over, we can come regularly to the Word of God. And that's one of the things I, I really encourage is that we're in the Word regularly, that we're here worshiping together regularly, right? This is the, old, the new covenant. A lot of times we, we take this and try to think like, this is, this is a one-on-one -on -one thing that I have with Jesus. And it's not just this one-on-one -on -one thing I have with Jesus, right? You guys, as my brothers and sisters, right? We are accountable to one another. We are here to sharpen one another. We are here to pray and worship and confess with one another. So as we think about Israel saying all this we will do, right? All this confession and repentance and encouragement is something we should be doing together and not being forgetful as we walk away. We can come each Sunday feeling lost and broken and leave renewed through the repeated promises of God, dying once and for all that we can have confidence that we are his people. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. God, that you give us a new covenant. And Lord, you are gracious and merciful to give an old covenant. And Lord, we thank you, God, that you did not forsake Israel and you did not forsake us. But God, you called Israel into covenant with you, that they can share that with you, Lord, that we can study it today and understand how that old covenant points to the new covenant in Christ. And God, we thank you for the blood of Christ covering over us. As the Passover lamb's blood was spread upon the door, Lord, you wash us white as snow and cover over us in the blood of Christ, that he stands at your right hand and advocates for us. And Lord, that the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts to give us confession and repentance. And Lord, we are a forgetful people, but Lord, you seal a covenant that we can never fully keep. And then you cover over our inadequacies and our failures and our sin through Christ's obedience. God, we pray you bless us and give us confidence to come to you day after day. Lord, give us the discipline to come to you in your word day after day in reading and prayer and confession. And Lord, bring us together week after week that we can sharpen one another, we can share in life with one another. Lord, that we can 
have a, a, the blessings of not being alone here, but God in with the family. And Lord, we pray for spiritual renewal in our hearts week after week. And God, we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.